we're trying to do is understand you, to know you, and to, to, to perceive just a bit more your ways. Father, we have so many distractions and deceptions in this life. Father, you'd think that all we would want to do is to know you, but we just get so caught up in smaller things. Catch us up tonight, Father, in you and what you're up to. We ask not so much that you bless what we're doing, but that you'd show us where you're blessing so we could, Father, be a part of what you're doing. Fill us, O Holy Spirit. Fill us anew with your presence. Direct us through your word. And lift every heart in Jesus' name. And all the church said, Turn around and say hi to your neighbor before you take a seat. Thank you. You can take those. I will. I'll take it off. Mrs. Lakato, you need to be seated. <laughs> Preacher's wife wandering in late. Good evening, everybody. What a good-looking group, and Happy New Year to you. What a great opportunity that we have to kick off a new year by opening God's Word and opening our hearts and asking Him to put the first in the second so that we can have a better understanding of what he is doing and how we can cooperate with his high and holy plan. I do not take it lightly, this opportunity that I get to preach. In fact, I got so excited today just thinking about, about preaching tonight. And it occurred to me that this year, this month, I kick off my 25th year preaching at Oak Hills. I kick off about my... Um, I don't know when I actually started pre preaching because I was an associate minister in Miami, Florida. And then I preached for about three of the five years that we were in Brazil. I had to learn Portuguese first. So maybe I'm into my 30th year of preaching. And I, I can honestly say that I love preaching more now than I ever have. I get so excited about preaching. And I really get depressed when I don't get to preach. And uh, so I've been really looking forward uh, to this opportunity. It was quite an extended uh, phase there uh, when I finished up the last series in July and uh, Randy took over. And then I finished a book in the month of July and August. And then I did a bunch of travel related to the book in September. And that was all good. But then all that travel got finished and I looked up and I said, I don't have anywhere to preach. I literally got on the phone. My wife will tell you, I called my sister up in Tyler, Texas. I said, you need a preacher this weekend? I was just looking around uh, for some place to preach. I just think it's such a fun thing to open up the Bible. And if it's half as much fun for you as it is for me, Meyer, are we in for a good time tonight? And so this uh, fella looked up and his wife passed out on the floor. He picked up the phone and called 911. He said, you need to get over here quick. My wife passed out. And they said, where are you? He said, well, our address is 522 Eucalyptus Street. And the 911 operator said, 
Yucca what? He said, eucalyptus tree. And she said, yucca what? Eucalyptus. She said, can you spell that? There's a long pause. He said, if I drag her over to Oak Avenue, can you meet us there? <laughs> well, sometimes it's a little complicated, and we look for a simpler way to express it. And sometimes the Bible can feel like spelling eucalyptus. And it occurred to me as we were digging into the study in the life of Joseph next weekend that maybe it's been a while since you got your bearings on the life of this Old Testament character. Or maybe, quite honestly, if I say, Joseph, you're going, now, is he the wife of Mary? Is he one of the apostles? Uh, where is, he a, is he a prophet? Where does he fit in? When did he live? Where can I find his story? And you're just kind of embarrassed because maybe you've never studied the life of Joseph. Hey, that's okay. We're going to do a primer tonight on the life of Joseph and look at not only some of the details about his life, but why his life matters so very, very much. And welcome to all of you who are watching online, wherever you are, whether in San Antonio, uh, whether you're part of one of our other campuses, or some of you may be tuning in from, from all around the world. Well, we're grateful to have this opportunity. You received a handout as you came in. Get a pencil handy. Get your Bibles open or get them turned on these days. Used to you say, get your Bibles open. Now people push buttons and look and I'm thinking they're ordering pizza and really they're reading the Bible. Robin Island consists of three square miles of windswept land off the coast of South Africa. For centuries, it has served as the home for prisons and leper colonies, and even a naval base. But most famously, for a time, Robben Island served as the home of one of the most famous prisoners in all of history. Anyone know? Nelson Mandela. He was the one who opposed the South African apartheid, a system designed to extend the rule and privileges of a white minority and diminish those of the blacks. It ensured that 14% of the people would control the rest of the population. Under apartheid, blacks were excluded from whites-only buses and whites-only beaches and whites-only hospitals. Blacks could not run for office or live in a white neighborhood. Apartheid legalized racism. Mandela, if you remember your history, was the perfect person to challenge apartheid. He was a descendant of royalty. Did you know that about him? And he was educated in the finest schools. His mother was a stout Methodist, strong Christian. She embraced her love for God and for people. And also, he was trained under the tutelage of a tribal chief who taught him the art of compromise and negotiation. And yet, as a young black lawyer in Cape Town, South Africa, he experienced what he wrote was a thousand slights, a thousand indignities, and a thousand unremembered moments. All of this worked together to produce within him an inward fire to fight the system that had imprisoned his people. So in the mid-1950s, Mandela rose. He was a force to be reckoned with. He was passionate. He was bitter. He was angry. He was given to retaliation. 
He had this enviable pedigree, and he had this imposing stature. Six feet, two inches, 245 pounds. He was, for many, the hope of the black culture. But then came, came August the 5th, 1962, in which government officials arrested Nelson Mandela, convicted him of treason, and sent him to prison. And for 27 years, 27 years, he stared through wired windows. And he wondered, surely he wondered, how could a season in prison play a part in God's plan? Maybe you've asked such questions yourself. Not necessarily about a prison, but perhaps. Or if not a prison, maybe your time in a dead-end job or a struggling marriage or a puny town or an enfeebled body. But some, some parts of life just seem to make sense. But, but what about those other parts of life? Autism. Alzheimer's. Mandela in prison on Robben Island. We ask in those times, is there a purpose for this? And then we ask, will I get through this? We really fear we don't. Nothing is darker than that valley from which we see no escape. Than that cave out of which we can find no exit. Nothing is more difficult in those days of darkness in which we fear the sun will never shine again, that we will never laugh again, that the kids will never come home again, that the budget will never be balanced again. It's that sense of never getting through this, never breaking through, never getting over it, never living beyond this, never learning to cope with it. We ask, is there any purpose to this? Will I get through this? Do more fundamental questions of life exist? And does a better answer exist than that of the life of Joseph? Joseph. Old Testament Joseph. He enters the story of Scripture as a immature teenager. But we see him grow under the tutelage of God in the furnace of affliction to become what we dare say is the most pivotal figure of his generation. It is not hyperbole to state that Joseph saved the human race from famine. But his story began in a pit of all places. Maybe that's why we love the story of Joseph. All the reality of it, the color of it, the passion of it, the human interest of it. It's been called the greatest short story ever written. It has all the elements, youth, Beauty, good looks, 
ambition, jealousy, hatred, temptation, greed, grudge, compassion, hope, hatred, disdain, suffering, sorrow, forgiveness, graciousness, and the happiest of happy endings. Most of all, it's a sketch of a life that began in the pit, ended up in the prison, in the prison, I'm sorry, went through the prison, ended up in the palace. The story of Joseph. Now, you'll remember that the book of Genesis contains the story of Joseph. And the book of Genesis contains great personalities. Seven men of faith, excluding the life of Adam, beginning with the life of Abraham. You have this list of men who come at us in the book of Genesis, one after another. Abraham modeling the simplicity of, I'm sorry, Abel modeling the simplicity of faith who brought his gift and it was received when Cain's was not. And then Enoch who had the stability of faith. And Noah who had the significance of faith because he believed God saved him. Abraham modeled the sacrifice of faith, willing even to give up his own son on an altar. That son, Isaac, modeled the submission of faith. His son, Jacob, modeled the school of faith. There's no more up and down character in the Bible than Jacob. Jacob had two wives and he seemed to have 20 personalities. He had handmaidens and between the handmaidens and his wives, he created the most famous dysfunctional family in the history of mankind. And it was out of that dysfunctional family, boy number 11, that we begin to read the story of Joseph, who gives us a picture of the success of faith. What a character. What a lineage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who had a brother named Esau, from whom Jacob swindled the birthright. And then Jacob, who wanted to marry Rachel, but got hoodwinked by Laban, the father-in-law, into marrying Leah, and so Swindler married into the family of a Swindler. And then they began having children. I should say everybody but Rachel began having children. She went a long time longing to have a child. She is described in Scripture as one who is beautiful. I think it's interesting that later on we'll see the very same phrase used to describe Joseph. As one who, not beautiful, but, but handsome which goes to show that good looks come from the mother. <laughs> and so Joseph appears in the story. He's a key character in the book of Genesis. Did you know that the story of Joseph occupies more chapters in the book of Genesis than any other character? That's an interesting trivia note if you're ever on Jeopardy. 
and someone asks you. With the exception of chapter 38 that has the story of Judah and Tamar, and chapter 49, which basically gives us a list of blessings that Jacob gave his children, all the other chapters are dedicated to the story of Joseph. Now, jo Joseph is a curious character for many reasons, but two bubble to the surface. One is, unlike David, he's not a man of outward spirituality. We don't have a book of Psalms written by Joseph. We don't see him passionate and crying out to God like Jeremiah did. He seems to fit more in that model that many men fit in, and that is a man of quiet and yet deep faith. Maybe some of you men will find a counterpart in Joseph. We probably wouldn't call Joseph a worship leader. We certainly wouldn't call him a preacher. There's no sermon attributed to him. But a spirit-filled administrator, manager, and leader, if he were running for president, I'd vote for Joseph. Something interesting also about Joseph. He's almost too good. I mean, he's just almost too good. We love studying Peter because Peter kept sticking his foot in his mouth just like we do. And you get the impression that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament was struggling to control his temper or manage his passion. But Joseph is just steady, rock solid. Maybe he messed up telling his brothers about the dreams. He seems impatient in prison when he's begging for the butler to remember him to Pharaoh. But these are only glimpses of perhaps cracks in his armor. And sometimes we read the story of Joseph and want to say, come on, blunder just a bit. But I wonder if we don't need people like Joseph and Daniel, the two men about whom no evil is spoken in Scripture, just to model for us men and women who can do it. There were no more evil cultures more pagan cultures than the ones in which Joseph and Daniel found themselves. Joseph in the Bronze Age in ancient Egypt. Daniel some thousand years later in Babylonian captivity. Godless, pagan, idol-worshiping cultures. And yet in the middle of both, you found two men, Joseph and Daniel, the two men about whom no evil is spoken, and they never gave in. No adultery, no dishonesty, no infidelity, just rock solid. Maybe we need men like that to show us that the standard can be met. So we love the life of Joseph for many reasons. If you want to place him on a timeline, place him right there in the Bronze Age. Put him in the early half of the 2nd century B.C. Difficult it is to lock dates around the lives of patriarchs. I remember back in seminary, I just kind of pegged him right in there, Abraham, about 
2,000. Joseph, about 1,600. Uh, Moses, about 1,200. David, about 1,000. And kind of work your way through. But nobody can really peg dates. We just have a general idea. But if you want one, use the first half, the early half of the second millennium B.C. Joseph. Why is his life so important? Why does he dominate so many pages in Scripture? I found five reasons. Actually, I didn't find these five reasons. My friend David Jeremiah found these five reasons. And I noted these, I bet, 20, well, at least 15 years ago when I listened to a tape by David Jeremiah on the life of Joseph. And I wrote them down in a place where I see them a lot. And so I thought, that's as good an outline as any. So David Jeremiah, if you're listening to this sermon, thank you for these five points. I've built my, my thoughts around these five words. Fill in the blanks if you'd like. Joseph models for us a pivotal life. A pivotal life. Without understanding the life of Joseph, you don't really understand how the children of Israel got from Cana into Egypt. Abraham, out of the land of Ur, comes in as Abram, following God's direction. And then you flip over to the book of Exodus from Genesis. If you skip from Abram to Moses, you say, now what happened? This small group of people has left Canaan and gone to Egypt. How did they get there? Well, this story, the story of Joseph, explains the migration of Abraham's descendants into Egypt. And it tells us how Joseph, as a young boy, angered his brothers. And his brothers were going to kill him, except for the eldest brother convinced them to sell him. And he was thrown into a pit. And some Midianite salesmen came. Midianite merchants came. And they bought Joseph. And they marched him on what was probably a 30 or 45 day journey. All the way into the land of Egypt. And so a seed was taken from Jacob's tree and lifted up on the winds of God's sovereignty and carried all the way into the dusty, dry lands of Egypt and dropped into the soil. Now what's interesting is how the children of Israel blossomed in the nation of Egypt. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 46 and verse 27. Genesis chapter 46. And verse 27. This is mid-story, if you'll allow this. If you don't know the story, we'll tell you the rest of the story. But this is after the brothers have left Canaan and come into Egypt. Now look at this, verse 27. All the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt, and they were two people. So Joseph himself didn't have a lot of kids. And all the persons in the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So there were 70 members of Jacob's family who migrated into the land of Egypt. Now, 
since Joseph was at this point the equivalent of the prime minister in Egypt, he could take care of them. And he, through Pharaoh's blessing, gave them a protected piece of property. So, my goodness, my time is already almost up. I haven't been paying attention. We're going to pick up the pace, ladies and gentlemen. I've still got four blanks to fill in. So skip over. I, just, I would keep a clock back here, and I haven't been watching it much. I heard what Jeff said about clock not being our, you know, uh, our, our enemy on Wednesday nights. So skip over to Exodus chapter 1. Let me show you what happened. Exodus chapter 1. Verse 7 and 8. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so 70 people in the land of Egypt began to turn into rabbits, and they multiply, and they multiply, until they multiply, until, did you know this? Look in Exodus chapter 30, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, after Moses secures the release of the children of Israel from the Egyptian Pharaoh, listen, 430 years later from the life of Joseph, okay, 430 years later, that's longer than the United States has been a nation. The children of Israel were in Egypt, and most of that was prosperous time until a Pharaoh came along who didn't remember the story of Joseph, and he began oppressing the Egyptians, and I'm sorry, impressing the Israelites, and the Israelites then, through God's mercy, were released. I just want you to notice how many of them there were. Verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about... 600,000 men on foot plus children. Round it off at 2 million. 600,000 men, one wife apiece, a child or two along the way, and you've gotten up from 70 to 2 million. See how instrumental this one life of Joseph was in carrying the children of Israel into the land of Egypt. His was a pivotal life. I think also his life is important because it was a providential life. We will call this a study in the life of Joseph, but really it could be better titled a study in the ways of God. No person in the Bible models the sovereignty of God more than the story of Joseph. It's the easiest story of any character in the Bible to outline. Preachers love to preach about Joseph because if you can't think of an outline, you can always think of one with Joseph. The pit, the house of Potiphar, the prison, and the palace. There you go. It just all comes together. But three out of four of those are negative experiences. Nobody loves the pit. Who wants to be a slave in Potiphar's house? He does what is right and resists Potiphar's wife's temptation, and he ends up in prison. How in the world can anything good come out of this? Well, that's what you're asking too. 
How can a 17-year-old begin to have enough faith so that he doesn't give up? That's what happened with Joseph. And yet somehow Joseph understood that God was behind all this all. Look in Genesis chapter 45. And if you enjoy underlining verses, you might want to underline verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. After Joseph is reunited later in his life with the brothers who sold him into captivity, they come thinking that he's going to settle the score and throw them into a pit. They actually do this twice. This is the first time. And look what Joseph says to them. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Look at this. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For these Two years the famine has been in the land. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Look at verse 7. And God sent me here before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Look at verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and the ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. In my Bible, in verse 5, I have circled the two words, for God. In verse 7, I've circled the two words, and God. In verse 8, I've circled the words, but God. For God, and God, but God. For God, He is the God who goes before, and God, He is the God who goes between us in calamity, but God, He is the God who goes beyond us. What a picture of God's sovereignty. Now, it's fun to celebrate God's sovereignty when you're in the palace, but it's something else to celebrate God's sovereignty when you're in the prison. One of the things that's striking about the life of Joseph is that Joseph gives God credit for both the, both the seven years of the feast and the seven years of the famine. When he explains to Pharaoh that you better buckle your seatbelt because seven years you're going to harvest all you can eat. And then he says, then you better watch out because for seven years you're not even able to get a drop of rain out of the sky. He says that the same Lord who is the Lord of the feast is the Lord of the famine. You see, Joseph helps us see that we serve a God who is over not just the good things, but also the bad things. He gives us a robust picture of who our God is. If you want to follow the story of Joseph under a particular doctrine, follow it under the doctrine of sovereignty. Sovereignty. It's a picture of God's sovereignty and if you wonder what the word sovereignty means, just look at the middle five letters. R-E-I-G-N. Sovereignty. God reigns. Here's a picture of a reigning God. We better move. Number three. Picture of Joseph is the picture of a prosperous life. A picture of a prosperous life. You know the word prosperity, I think, has fallen on hard times. And that is because some people have peddled a gospel that says if you believe in Jesus, you're going to make a lot of money. 
And then the reaction to that is people who say, well, if you believe in Jesus, you shouldn't expect anything good at all to come into your life. So now we don't know whether we should expect to be blessed or not. Well, the story of Joseph tells us obedience precedes blessing, and blessing follows obedience. You obey God, you will be blessed. I don't know if you'll be blessed financially. Maybe you'll be blessed educationally. You'll certainly be blessed spiritually. And no doubt you'll be blessed inwardly. God has a variety of ways in which he blesses people. And those blessings sure came the way of Joseph. When we have time, we're going to really dig in. And look what it means to live beneath the favor of God. And to enjoy the favor of God. seems like the world is comprised of two types of people, those who make lists of two types of people and those who don't. <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. Because I'm going to tell you <laughs> that right now on the face of the earth, there are two types of people. There are those who are living under the favor of God and those who are living in rebellion to God. That's really true. Joseph models for us what happens when a person submits him or herself to the favor of God. Trusting God, living God. When you look in Genesis chapter 39, we won't take time to do it right now, but you'll see one, two, three, four, five times, five times, and Joseph was successful. 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 He was so successful and so good looking that Potiphar's wife put the move on him. And when he resisted her and didn't go into the bedchamber with her and ran out and left his coat because he'd rather have his character than his coat, he got placed in prison. And you know what the first thing happened to him in prison? He gets promoted in charge of the prison. Everywhere he went... He got promoted. Why? Because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. I want you to enjoy God's favor. And I think Joseph teaches us that when we are obedient, we can expect the Lord's blessing in the way he prescribes, in the way he brings. Not to make us greedy. Listen, God's blessings, God's blessings create a spirit of gratitude, not greed. They create a spirit of gratitude and not greed. And his blessings come as he wants. But he is a model for us of a prosperous life. And he's also a model, number four, of a pure life. A pure life. His life was not without struggles. Joseph had to overcome self-pity. We wish he would have complained more just so we could relate to him. But you just don't find Joseph complaining. He had to overcome sexual enticement. He had a thousand and one reasons to say yes to Potiphar's wife and have a little dalliance, a little affair. At the age of 27, he had never been with a woman. He was full of testosterone, full of opportunity, separated from his family. Who would have known? But he said, how can I sin against God? How can I sin against God? And she was so upset, she told Potiphar that he put the move on her. Next thing, Joseph knows he's in prison. He had to overcome sexual enticement. He had to overcome self-indulgence. 
He had access to more riches than anyone in the world. Joseph, I'm sorry, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the granary, the treasury, the government. He wore the robe of Pharaoh. He had the signet ring of Pharaoh. He rode in the chariot behind Pharaoh. When, when Pharaoh walked in the room, everyone bowed down, just like Deanland does when I walk into the room. And I've had to deal with that too, that pride. He could have misused his power, but he never did. When his brothers came, he could have gotten even, but he never did. He could have grown proud, but you read Genesis chapter 45, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, in which he said, God did this, God did this, God did this. He remained humble. He led a pure life. Number five. He led a prophetic life. It was a prophetic life. He is a picture of Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink, a commentary from many, commentator from many years past, who tends to go into great detail on these kind of things, makes a list of 100 comparisons between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. 100 similarities. Things like Joseph was a shepherd, I mean, Jesus was a shepherd of souls, Joseph was a shepherd of sheep. Jesus was beloved of his father, Joseph was beloved of his father. Jesus was hated by his brothers, Joseph was hated by his brothers. And Jesus was not believed by his brothers, Joseph was not believed by his brothers. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, Jacob was sold, sorry, Joseph was sold for 20 pieces. Jesus was sent to Egypt as a child. Joseph was sent to Egypt as a child. Jesus was a person in whom the Spirit of God dwelt. When Pharaoh heard Joseph interpret the dream, what did he say? He said, has a man ever come in, whom such, in, in such a way in whom the Spirit of God dwells? He's a picture of Jesus. He's a picture of the Jesus who is going to come. A picture of the Jesus who, like Joseph, is going to deliver not just the children of Israel, but the whole world. And not out of just a physical famine, but a spiritual famine. A picture of Jesus who now reigns, just like Joseph reigned over that kingdom, so Jesus is reigning over this one. And he's escorting, and he's guiding, and he's sovereign. He's permitting a famine He's bringing a feast, he's creating favor, and he's purposing out his will as only he knows. The big verse in, Gen in, in the book of Joseph, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, is Genesis chapter 50 in verse 20. Genesis chapter 50 in verse 20. Another one worthy of your highlighter if it's not already highlighted. After Jacob dies, the brothers of Joseph come, and they're begging for mercy. They assume that the only reason that Joseph let them off the hook was because he loved his father. And now that the father's dead, surely Joseph is going to take the whole family and throw them all in the pit. <laughs> and Joseph just shakes his head. In verse 19, he says, Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. The picture of a God who when Satan comes bringing evil into our lives, God can reroute it, reweave it, reissue it, recycle it, and turn it into something good. He did that with Nelson Mandela. 27 years Nelson Mandela spent on Robben Island in that prison. We could, in the middle of those years, look at the story of Nelson Mandela and say, well, I guess he's just wasting away. Did you know that Robben Island, the prison on Robben Island, turned out to be the very furnace of affliction through which God shaped the character of Nelson Mandela. He himself would say that the post-prison Mandela was much different than the pre-prison Mandela. Mandela will forever be known as a man with great negotiation skills. You know where he learned those? He would say, and he did say, I learned those in prison, keeping one prisoner from the other. He was a man of great grace, you know where he learned to give grace? He would say, and he did say, because he learned to see the goodness even in the guards who were assigned to take care of him. He became a man of great patience. You know where he learned his patience? He would say, and he did say, in that six-by-six six wired cell from which he would be taken every morning at 5.30 a.m., be given a chisel to chisel rock until noon, and then drink a bowl of soup, and then chisel rock again until 8 p.m., and then sit underneath a single light bulb and read Tolstoy. He expanded his mind. He came out of prison a different man. 27 years. That sure seems like a long time, but not when God is in, about to entrust you with the deliverance of an entire nation. Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into captivity. He didn't see his brothers again until he was 30. And he lived all of those 13 years never expecting to see them again. Now, I don't know where you are in the Joseph story. Maybe you're in a pit. Maybe those who love you have sold you out. They've turned against you. Maybe you're in Potiphar's palace. You're just trying to do your best. But you're a stranger in a foreign land. Maybe you're in prison. Maybe you've been betrayed, set up, and framed, forgotten. Maybe some of you right now are experiencing the blessing of God's palace and life is good I think wherever you are in the life in which you lead Joseph can give you encouragement the encouragement I hope that you'll take out of this is this promise that says I'll get through this whatever it is I really believe you will at the bottom of your outline you'll see a couple of verses 
One of them from Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Paul says, Such things, referring to stories like the story of Joseph, were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. They give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises. May this story do just the same for you. As we study through the book of Genesis, the last part of the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph, every weekend in every service, I'm going to invite everybody to repeat with me this pledge of hope. I'd like to invite you to be the first ones to do it with me. And I'd like to invite you to do it, not just on the weekends when you come to the worship service, but every single morning. Let these be the first words you say when you wake up. Let them be the last words you say when you go to sleep. Will you do that between now and the end of April while we're studying through the life of Joseph? Get in the habit of trusting God, and these words will help you do it. You ready? Say these words out loud with me. I'll get through this. With God's help, I will. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. I won't be foolish or naive, but I won't despair either. I will get through this. Lord God, thank you for the promise that comes through your word. May your blessings be upon everybody who has received your teaching tonight. You've promised a blessing to anybody who studies your word. So we open our hands and look to you in expectation, knowing that you'll give us exactly that. Through Jesus we pray, and all the church said, Well, Jeff, I went long, but that's what happens when I don't have four months to preach. It just kind of, you know. Now, 